2: Greedy elites are purposefully stoking racial division and laughing all the way to the bank. That is the bottom line of Dr. Ian Haney Lopez's latest book, Merge Left, Fusing Race and Class, Winning Elections, and Saving America. This is an essential read for the upcoming election as the left tries to rescue democracy from the modern rights campaign of fear, racial division, and corporate interests. On this episode of the New Books Network, join your host, Dr. Lee Pierce, and Mary Whiteside as they interview Dr. Haney Lopez about this important follow-up work to his 2014 dog whistle politics and his latest digital project, Race Class Academy. The country is headed toward what will surely be one of the most consequential elections ever, with the right gearing up to exploit racial fearmongering, to divide and distract, and the left splintered over the next step forward. Can either approach race forward or colorblind Build the progressive supermajorities necessary to break political gridlock and fundamentally change the country's direction. That is the work done in this book. Deep research, nuanced argument, and urgent insight. Merged left is an indispensable tool for the upcoming political season and in the larger fight to build racial justice and shared economic prosperity for all of us. When we work together to reject racism as a weapon of the rich, We can make sure that the government works for all of us of every race and color. Stay tuned to hear more from Dr. Ian Haney Lopez. Welcome back, everyone, to New Books Network Podcast. I am your hostess with the mostest, Lee Pierce, rhetorician, she, they pronouns, and I am a host for the channels in language and media and communications. I am so excited today to be welcoming a really important book that is especially timely, and that is titled Merge Left, Fusing Race and Class, Winning Elections and Saving America by Ian Haney Lopez. Talk about a promise list, right? Is everybody excited? I'm so excited. Uh, So you've already heard a lot about the book from the introduction. Uh, Dr. Lopez previously wrote the book Dog Whistle Politics as a predecessor to this, cannot recommend it enough. And I'm going to go ahead now and turn it over to Dr. Lopez. Is it okay if I call you, Ian? Please do. Terrific. Well, take it away. Let us know all about the book and uh, maybe a little bit about Dog Whistle Politics that preceded it, as I know you pick up some of the concepts in this book. And anything else you think might be helpful for the listeners before we dive into this fabulous, fabulous book?
3: Yeah, happy to. You know, And maybe the best way to do it is to work through the elements of the subtitle, right? Fusing race and class, uh, winning elections, saving America. So fusing race and class, here's the core insight um, of dog whistle politics, the core insight of like what's happening to us right now. Racial division has been weaponized by powerful elites against all of us. You think about Donald Trump, he mainly campaigns on themes of racial fear. I mean, he, he, he tries to trigger... Intense fears rooted first and foremost in racist stereotypes. And and why? Because he wants us fighting each other so that we won't notice the way in which he's failed to govern on behalf of all Americans, but instead has generated boom times for Wall Street, boom times for the billionaires and the big corporations, in the midst of the biggest economic contraction in the history of this country. Mm-hmm. And now... When we see that clearly, when we fuse race and class, when we see that the fight against racism is the fight for class equality, for economic reform, that actually builds a big enough multiracial progressive coalition that we can win elections. And let me just pause there for a second. I'm not just saying that hypothetically. I've run two big national research projects testing the power of a message that says, Greedy elites are trying to divide us. Let's come together and make sure government works for us and not for corporations. And I know that these are the most powerful, this sort of message is the most powerful political message out there right now. And now to the third part of the subtitle and Saving America, you know, that's not just hyperbole. We are watching America be torn apart by greedy interests, by wealthy billionaires who profit when they sunder our democracy, when they get us to fight each other, and if we want to save our democracy, if we want to restore economic fairness, if we want to stop systematic government violence against communities of color, we have to build bridges across racial differences. We have to build a multiracial progressive supermajority, drive these fear-mongering politicians out of office, and make sure that government is actually working for all of us. That's what I mean by saying what's at stake is whether or not we save America.
2: Yeah, certainly. I mean, I think the stakes of this book are excellent. Although you, I think you do a nice job of of not using fear-mongering to sell the points of the book, which I really respect. In fact, there's a nice afterword about, uh, what is it, It's Always Darkest Before the Dawn?
3: Yeah, I really think that this is not a moment for more fear. Especially if you have, nor is it a a moment for a sort of Pollyanna-ish, everything's going to be fine. This is a moment for saying, we understand what's been happening to us. We understand what's being done right now. And that implies a clear route forward that corresponds to our core values and is realistically possible. And in that, in that sense, this is a very hopeful book. This is a book yes. that says, in the midst of all these disasters, we can understand what's happening to us, and there's a very clear route forward.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And we are also joined today by a co-host, Mary Whiteside. Mary, do you want to introduce yourself?
1: Hi everyone. Yes, I am. Uh, I co-host with uh, Leon another podcast, but I joining here today. I am an appellate advocate and uh, super interested in uh, political science and politics, and so very excited to be here today. Do you want
2: to take the first question for the book?
1: I do. Yes. So one of the things that I thought was uh, really kind of surprising, and was that um, leading with racial justice for communities of color causes them to lose support for the position, which it does for whites too. Do you think that that's a pragmatic response uh, for communities of color after, you know, centuries of whites refusing to cede any advantage that they have?
3: Well, let's, let's, let's back up for a second so that so the, the audience understands what we're talking about. So a couple of years ago, I launched um, what we called the Race Class Narrative Project, brought in a communication specialist, brought in um, leading thinkers, leading pollsters, um, um, a think tank that worked on economic and racial justice. And what we wanted to know was how we could build a big enough coalition to actually drive out of office dog whistle politicians, to actually make sure the government worked for people. um, And we thought when we went into that process that the big challenge was to convince whites to join a multiracial coalition. Um, uh, And there was, it certainly was. But we also assumed that most people in communities of color, specifically the African American and Latino communities, would be like us, um, progressives, especially, you know, for example, I'm a I, I teach race and American law at UC Berkeley. I've been sort of a student of racism and active in racial justice fights for decades. I just always assumed that uh, people in black and brown communities would be very comfortable with a message of systemic racism, that, that, you know, that there's this long history of racism and that we're going to come together and we're going to build power with others and we're going to convince whites to join us and we're going to fight racism. When we ran focus groups, this turned out not to be true. But yes, many racial justice activists are very comfortable with this sort of analysis, but it's also true that many racial justice activists spend a lot of their time doing consciousness raising in communities of color, because most folks in communities of color aren't thinking in terms of systemic racism. And the more we talk to people, the more I kind of understood what was happening. One is just the, the, the simple, the challenge of thinking about abstractions, like what is structural racism? What is systemic racism? What, what does system mean? What does structure mean? That's sure. certainly one challenge. But, but the deeper challenge is the story we end up telling. So, for example, after I was listening to what we were saying to folks in these focus groups, we were saying to them, in effect, hey, Bad news. The problem you confront is 400 years of uh, racial hatred aimed at people like you that is now being weaponized by a racist president who's beloved by millions of racist white folks. Come together with others. Let's fight back.
2: <laughs>
3: right? And now people said to that, I'm out. Right. Yes, yeah, sure. so we, we literally, I mean, I, I, you know the, one of the telling responses that, that, that I heard, uh, and this is in a Black focus group in Atlanta, is so a woman responded to a, our basic story by saying, They can put liquor stores on every corner. I don't have to walk into them. And, and the way I understood her was that she was saying, I can sort of understand the structural racism argument. That's the liquor stores on every corner. But in the face of that overwhelming reality, I can only do what I can do. I'm in charge of myself, right? Now, and I just want to be really clear, it's a disaster when people revert to an individual responsibility frame as a basis for thinking about political engagement. Because the individual responsibility frame is, I can't afford to join with others. In fact, if others are struggling they're individually responsible too. It's their fault. I just need to take care of me. Right. So, so, and, and this was, this was a, this was huge to see this. Now, I also want to be clear the repeated police killings of unarmed African Americans, the videos, the the horrific roll call of names, the incredible activism of the movement for black lives, um, all the energy that the activists have putting, are, are putting into this, this is changing public consciousness about systemic racism, about structural racism in a really, really dramatic way. Things have really shifted over the last two years, and in particular since May, since the killing of George Floyd. I just finished some recent polling uh, in mid-July. Highest levels of agreement I've ever seen with the idea that the country confronts systemic racism and that we need to do something about it so you know i don't i don't want to say listen you know um don't use that language The, the the consciousness raising getting people to see the way in which racism is institutionalized that's incredibly important but we shouldn't confuse our comfort with that analysis with where most people are even in this research that i just completed A story that said not, hey, we've got hundreds of years of racism and we need to take care of communities of color, but a story that said racism is intentionally being weaponized against us as a divide and distract, a tactic by powerful elites, and every racial group will be better off when we come together, get those people out of office, elect new leaders, and make sure that we take care of each other no matter whether we're white, brown, or black that message was still more popular, not just with whites, but also with Latinos and with African Americans.
2: Yeah, you have a great image. It's going up on my Instagram as soon as this episode is done. And it's real simple. It's, it's, you know, you call it the race class project and it's three circles. And of course now I can't find it in the book, but will you just, um, I'll find it in a second, but we'll put it in the show notes. Oh, yeah, here it is. So the core race class narrative, uh, the race class approach, which is what you talk about toward the end of the book. And then we'll back up to the beginning. And it's got three circles, right? Number one, join together across racial lines Two, not in this order. They're you know, they're in like a like a triangle. So I'm just for the sake of, of presenting them. Demand government for all and distrust greedy economic elites. Sowing division.
3: Yeah, that's the message. That yeah, is, I love that it. Is the message. So. So and, and let me also just say right now, I mean, it's, it, it's in the book. Obviously, would love people to buy the book, read the book. Um, but I've also created a free online resource for people who want to Really understand dog whistle politics, how racism has been weaponized against us. Want to understand why standard progressive messaging isn't working to build a multiracial coalition, and want to understand this new fusion race class approach. And it's called raceclassacademy.com, raceclassacademy.com. and it it it, it illustrates this. It's you know it's it's short videos, none longer than two minutes and twenty seconds. Um, and I think the second or third video illustrates precisely these circles. The right's basic message, and we can talk more about how they're doing this, but the right's basic message is fear and distrust people of color, then turn around and hate government and trust the marketplace. And what we're doing is we're saying the most potent political message out there, it beats that racial fear, hate government message, and it wins and it, and it wins. It is the most powerful message right now in every racial community. That message is come together across racial differences. Distrust greedy elites, stoking division, demand that government work for all of us, no matter what race we come from.
1: Well, you see- or cla- or class or class. Right. Mary Hopin, right. Well, you you have this line that I that I love, which is in the book, which is that Americans believe they belong to the not yet rich class. And I think that that is true across all racial lines and you know is a you know is a real force that you know we have to kind of you know kind of work against because that has really kind of permeated uh, American uh, American, Culture, but you also say that that today's right has abandoned conservatism, and I find that a really interesting um, concept. Can you can you kind of describe um, what you mean by that?
3: Well, let me let me separate those two out. You know, the 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 you know Americans b- believe that they're not yet rich. I think it's really important to understand that the conversation we're having right now is not a classic. Class analysis sort of conversation that focuses on economic position. Class in the United States is deeply bound up with status, with how you feel about yourself. Can you mm-hmm. count yourself among the hardworking? Can you take pride in providing for your family? Do you feel rewarded for your efforts? Those are status questions. They're not like, you know, how much money do you have in your bank account? Now, those are related, but okay. Anytime you start talking about status in the United States, you're also talking about race. You're probably also talking about gender. You might be talking about religion, right? All of these are bound up with questions of status. And so what I was trying to do there is say... We need, to, we need to fuse race and class in our political organizing, in our analysis, because they're already fused in reality.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Race and class in the United States are inseparable. They're inseparable in terms of status. They're inseparable because economic titans. Use racism as the principal weapon in the class war they're winning. They're already fused, and those of us who want to save our society have to recognize it and have to connect them too. So that's that's that. The right and conservatism. I think that this is just an enormously important point. Um, the the you know conservatism is frankly just another um, um, lie. Uh, it's an, it's another fraudulent term being used by today's right. If you think about what conservatism used to mean, it used to mean people who believe in major social institutions, who believe that change ought to be slow and cautious and considered, and that we ought to strive to honor core values uh, while society slowly evolves, right? This is this is little c conservatism. We believe in institutions. We believe in ch- culture. We believe in tradition. We believe in core values. We also believe in change and evolution because we know that societies evolve. We just think that that evolution ought to be slow and thoughtful and respectful of past traditions. Okay. Well, I mean, we might we might disagree with that. We might be like, no. Once we know that something needs to change, we should change it quickly, and we should. Okay. Fine. But let's talk about the modern right. Does it believe in core institutions? <clears throat> sure, doesn't seem to. Destroying the post office. Right. It's you know it's 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 um, 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 you know hijacking the government and handing it over to the rich. It's destroying voting. It's destroying the legislative process. Right? Does it does it actually believe in core values? No. It's violating those core values at every turn does it believe in you know in the in the essentials of the american experiment does it believe in a e pluribus unum out of many one no it's trying to fracture that does it believe in a government by and for the people no it mainly serves the interests of the very rich what we're seeing is a modern right that no longer believes in democracy the this the modern right is Hostile to actual voting. Um, yes. And the reason they're hostile to voting is because the modern right is mainly using government to help the very rich. And then they're turning around and, as a strategy for doing so, they're stoking social conflict and animosity purposefully. And, and we might also add, and this is just mind boggling, the modern right is cooperating with Russian efforts to undermine and destroy public confidence in our major institutions and also in the project of democracy and international collaboration. The modern right is cooperating with a country that is trying to destroy the American project because it helps them win power. That that is a violation of conservatism. Yeah.
1: And do you think that in your focus groups or anything, do you do you did you get a sense in, or that the base, you know, they're uh, you know, the, the regular people get that or they still believe themselves in little c conservatism?
3: I think that when you say the base you mean the the, the the sort of the trump space
1: the Trump space, yeah, I'm using the media term you know yeah. But, um, but yeah the you know basically the the Republican voters
3: so there's another part of the book where where I take up the question of identity politics and I say, listen, you know I, I, Even among liberals, there's this tendency to condemn identity politics and to say, well, identity politics is, you know, it's women and people of color and gays and lesbian and transgender folks um, trying to foreground the importance of their identity and their experience. And, And that's actually partial and fragmenting and divisive. And I respond to that by saying, nonsense. The truth is all politics is identity politics even when you're privileged by certain identity hierarchies everybody is engaging in politics engaging in public action engaging in building power with others right because that's what politics is building power with others everybody's engaging in that project through a series of three basic foundational identity questions who am i in this society Am I esteemed? Am I valued? Uh, and I am I dismissed? Am I threatened? Who am I in this society? Second question: Who threatens me? Where is the source of threat coming from in my life? Third question: Who are my allies? Who will help me? Right. These are the questions that the right is talking about all the time, and this is how the right has transformed a party that used to be known as the party of big business into the party of the silent majority, right? Because what they've done is they've grabbed people's attention by telling an identity story. And the identity story is, who are you in the society? You're decent, you're hardworking, you're law abiding implicitly, you're white Mm -hmm. and you're under threat. Okay. Who threatens you? It's dangerous and undeserving people of color, it's thang, the thugs, it's gangbangers, it's terrorists, it's illegals. Um, it's liberal snowflakes. And, and yeah, who are the enablers
1: mm-hmm.
3: of all of these dangerous and undeserving people? And implicitly, right, in, in a way that triggers strong racist stereotypes, you're under threat from people of color. Mm-hmm. And who are your allies Well, now your ally is the party that is pushing back against these liberal snowflakes, pushing back against liberalism generally, the party that's willing to reject political correctness, that rejects cancel culture, that stands with um, you you who are beset. Oh, and by the way, now that you can't trust your neighbors because they're dangerous and undeserving, and now that you can't trust liberals or liberal government, you ought to trust business leaders. Business leaders ought to run the country and you ought to trust the rich because they're not just rich. They're the job creators. That is, when you when you think about who the Republican voters are, they're not policy voters. They're, and they're certainly not foreign policy voters. They're identity voters. And I don't mean to disparage them by saying they're identity voters and we're not. We're all identity voters. Right. But they're voting in terms of identity and they're voting in terms of a very particular identity story that says... Cling to racial status as your sense of, of finding pride in who you are. Fear people who are darker because they are supposedly dangerous and undeserving. Hate liberal government because it favors them over you. Trust instead the rich. They should run government and they are the job creators. You're on your own in the economic marketplace. It's an identity story. and that, that, This is one of the things that's truly remarkable. We know, for example, right now, Donald Trump continues to get very high marks on his handling of the economy with among Republicans, even though he's just presided over the largest contraction of the American economy in the history of the country. Hmm. Because people aren't paying attention to to numbers, to policies, they're paying attention to stories. And Trump's story is, blame China. China just destroyed our economy. I'll rebuild it, right? It's, it's, it's about the
0: stories. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
2: Yeah. And well, and it's also, right, it's about, it's about narrative. And you have this, actually, you're the first person I've ever seen do this as a rhetorician. I'm shocked that it's not in rhetoric books, but you have the, the, the table of contents for the book. And then at the bottom, you actually pick out specific pages in the table of contents that identify all of the competing narratives which I thought was really helpful Um, because it, it is and it is narratives and you and you go through kind of the different clusters of narratives. We should talk about some of those. But also, it's the way that what you call dog whistle politics or coded racial appeals interact, right, are kind of intersect with the narrative. And I think that's a place to maybe go back to the beginning of the book a little bit, because I want to give people a sense of some of the main arguments of the book. And one of them is is dog whistle politics. We've used that term a couple times now. Maybe we want to clarify that and expand it a little bit. But then also you make this claim at the beginning of the book that I think is so important. And you argue that Trump's racism, even though everyone talk, what many people, the mainstream media talk about it as if it's just raw Ku Klux Klan straight out of the gate racism. You say, no, it's still coded.
3: That's And fair. I think that's a
2: really important piece. Um and then maybe we could talk about some of the different narratives that you identify and how those work together and also to create division.
3: Yeah, it's it, it's such an important piece, both analytically, but also in terms of what it implies in terms of strategy and what it implies in terms of the future of the country. So dog whistle politics is the use of coded phrases that are designed to trigger intense fears or resentments rooted in racist stereotypes but in a manner that come across as uh, it, but in a manner that uh, that people interpret their reactions as common sense rather than seeing them as racism so let me give you some examples before but welfare queen thug inner city illegal alien uh, or in contrast hardworking american american heartland Uh, silent majority, um, uh, taxpayers, right? You know, almost all of us, if we close our eyes, we will see those phrases in color coded ways, right? It's going to trigger racial imagery, but at the same time, not one of those phrases on its surface uses an explicitly racial term. None of them talks about racial categories. None of them use a racial epithet. Now, you know, if you're, if you're pay a lot of attention to politics, then you're probably in a position to say, yeah, but I recognize that they rely on racist stories about dangerous and undeserving people of color and supposedly innocent and hardworking whites. So, you know, these stories are racist. I agree. 100%. I agree. But don't suppose that everybody else sees that clearly too. In fact, both in 2018, and again, just last month, I tested messages using exactly those phrases and found out that, yes, the majority of whites agree with those messages. That is, um, you know, when when we ask them on a poll, you know, do you agree on a scale of zero strongly disagree to 100 strongly agree, 50 is neutral. Whites agree. The majority of whites uh, agree with that message. Mm. So do the majority of African-Americans. So do the majority of Latinos. So do the majority of Democrats. So do the majority of union households. It's an enormous mistake to think that that if you can see the racism in Trump's message, everybody else can too. And just a really quick, sharp distinction: the majority of Democrats think that Donald Trump is a racist. That's what they say, but they don't really have a very sophisticated conception of what racism means. They just mean he's a really bad person and he's a bigot. He is those things, but more than anything else, he's a strategic racism. He's using race strategically, and one of his strategies is to trigger racist stereotypes in a way that most people understand as common sense. He's so successful at this that he's doing that right now in a way that persuades, that builds agreement from majorities of Latinos, African Americans, Democrats, and union households right now. Okay so so that's important analytically that's important strategically because what that implies is we are not in a battle of uh, the country's not in a battle in which this election turns on how many people are closet clans members right we we're, we're not trying to be like oh we got to beat the clan <laughs> what we need to do is reach people who whose racist fears can be purposefully triggered, but who are also against racism. And this is one of the things that we found. The the, the people who react to a message of we're threatened by illegals will also turn around and say, but I'm not racist, and I think racism is wrong, and I think everybody who has the courage to move should have a chance to make it. And now, are these two, two things completely contradictory? You bet. Welcome to the reality of most human beings. Most human beings can hold contradictory ideas simultaneously. And and the issue is which of them gets triggered? Which of them seems most relevant to taking care of themselves and taking care of their family? And so here, this is this third part about the future of our country. I think this is so important. People are not, we, we cannot, we ought not, we should not, we must not write off Americans who... Um, Uh, Are right now being manipulated in terms of racist fears. They remain our neighbors. Nor should we suspect that people who vote with us, if we're voting Democrat, are not also susceptible to these racist fears. Almost all of us are. Hmm. What that means is our project is to reinforce in people their anti racist commitments, their belief in racial equality their hope for a society in which all people are welcomed and afforded a chance to thrive and to show them that building that society is actually the best way to take care of themselves and their own families, right? That, that, that that's a project. That's what makes us hopeful about, can make us hopeful about America and about the American project. It's not that we're there, but we can, we can plausibly get there, as opposed to the story that most progressives are telling themselves which is Donald Trump's a bigot and so are the 40% plus of Americans who are still supporting him at this late date. Boy, if that's the country that we're living in, I don't see how we can plausibly hope our country or our democracy survives.
2: Yeah, demophobia is not a good response, right? So just assuming that all of the Trump supporters must be the enemy, I I very much agree. I don't think that that's either true nor helpful.
0: (laughs)
3: Right, right. It's panic inducing, right? Because then it's like, we are on the road to civil war. And, and I think that, you know, in the midst of the coronavirus, in the midst of, uh, you know, sort of speaking now from California, in, in the midst of clear evidence of um, um, the sort of opening stages of climate collapse, right? So we've got these, we've got economic collapse, we've got a, a, the, the, a, a global pandemic. We have clear signs that the, that, the, uh, that the environment is shifting in a way that, that directly threatens us And now you're also telling me half the country are are white supremacist sympathizers and and somehow I've got to save this society? Off I go to Costco to buy another bottle of whiskey.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um. I thought this was a, a really interesting point that you had about the middle, that the middle of, of the spectrum from left to right is, is composed not by people who are necessarily centrist, but by people who aren't paying a lot of attention to politics and that, you know, they can be tugged in either direction. I thought that was actually a pretty hopeful, um, a hopeful point. Do you think you could expand a little on that?
3: Yeah, the, the, it, it's such a great question. So, so we, we're used to using left and right as metaphors, and, and I, I use it myself, you know, the title of the book is Merge Left, but there's a big risk with that metaphor, and that is it suggests a sort of a, a, a lineal continuum that there's left on one side, right on the other, and by implication there's a center, and that the center is somehow centrist in the sense of having considered both sides and having come to some Thoughtful, middle, moderate position. Now, and, and, and let me just say, the biggest promoters of that myth are neoliberals. Are these sort of um, new Democrats who are like, you know, well, you know, we're, you know, we're not as extreme as as the Republicans, but neither are we as radical as as the Democrats. We strongly believe that government ought to serve the interests of Wall Street and corporations, and government can't actually help people. You're just okay. So, just just to be clear, right there. There is a group of people whose strategy is to promote the myth that there is a considered center, that they, as centrists, uh, ref- uh, um, um, uh, uh, govern on behalf of that considered center, and that the center is a neoliberal center that, that thinks that, that distrusts government and that favors uh, corporations. Okay, but nonsense. In fact, what's happening is. You have a couple of contending worldviews, a couple of conflicting ideologies. One ideology is being promoted by the right, and that ideology says we are locked into racial conflict. You need to choose sides. Liberals are the enemy. The, the, you know, the, the, your allies are the marketplace. The other ideology is the ideology on the left, and it's and it's far less well designed, developed. But it says something like, "We feel favorable towards people of color. We believe that government act ought to actually work for all people. We're leery of an economic system that rewards the very rich." But it's you know those are the basic elements, not super well defined, but those are contending ways of understanding the world, and the people in the middle. Are kind of bouncing back and forth between different elements of those views at the same time that for the most part they're just trying to make it through their lives. They're, you know, they've got a lot going on, whether it's jobs or work or you know, whatever, family, kids, whatever's going on, they're not paying a whole lot of attention. We call these the persuadable voters. You can think of them also as the conflicted voters. They will move in either direction depending on which side can get their attention, but also convince them that one side or the other, these contending worldviews is the best way for them to take care of their families or to see themselves in a positive light, right? And so this is such an important insight. And it's, it's such an important insight in terms of what progressives are trying to do, but it's also such an important insight in terms of what Betsy DeVos is trying to do. In terms of what conservatives are trying to do, they do not want a robust system of public education designed to build a population capable of critical thinking. Because it's the critical thinking that allows people to see through, the to, to, to weigh the two ideologies, to see through the, the lies that are used to justify the right-wing ideology. To make informed decisions about which worldview more accurately captures their values, captures their aspirations, describes society, right? So the, the right has a very strong interest in the dumbing down of America, and they're actively pursuing it.
2: But now, now it would actually be a really cool time um, before we maybe get into, I think, some of the immigration stuff that you talk about at the end of the book. I'd really like to hear more about some of the the downfalls of the current narratives, which include limits of the scapegoat narrative and also colorblind economic populism. And then also what does right, that merged, fused, race-class project narrative look like?
3: So I'd say you know, we can understand... so so so. First, let's stipulate that for the last 50 years, the right has been using a message that promotes racial fear and also hatred of government so that they can rig government for themselves. And so then the question immediately becomes, Okay, but if the right's been doing that for 50 years, surely the Democrats have had plenty of experience and have figured out a way to defeat it. And the reality is that's not true. No Democratic candidate for president has won a majority of the white vote. Since 1964, which is to say, since Republican dog whistle politics really got underway. Right? So Democrats haven't figured out how to defeat this. Why not? Well, because one strategy fails and fails in a pretty dramatic formula fashion. Well, because one strategy fails and fails pretty dramatically. That strategy is to call dog whistling politicians racist and bigots and to Mm. challenge white racism. And and we hear this strategy promoted a lot right now in 2020. We need to call out the racism of Donald Trump. We need to call him a bigot. We need to say that anybody who votes for him, they're bigots. How do you think? I mean, okay, I've just said, look, majorities of African-Americans, Latinos, in addition to whites, Democrats and union households actually find Trump's messages convincing. Now we're going to turn around and say to people, hey, you thought that message was common sense, but it turns out that's the message of a bigot, so you're probably a bigot too. And Mm. oh, what they're going to do is critically self-reflect on their position and and come around and change (laughs) their mind? No, they're going to turn around and say, you know what? You're a racist, and you're racist against me for calling me a racist when what I'm saying is just common sense. And that is precisely what the right does. And it's been doing that, you know, it's been doing that since the late 1960s, actually. One of the first dog whistlers used to say, you know who the biggest bigots in the world are? It's the people who call others bigots, right? Mm -hmm. And they immediately flipped the script. So that approach, it remains popular. Lots of people are saying we should be doing this. But Democrats learned as early as 1970, you actually lose support when you call dog whistle politicians racists and bigots. But they learned the wrong lesson. They went from there not to, we need another way to tackle this head on. Instead, they went to, we're just going to ignore it. We're going to run silent about it. We know that the Democratic base itself is divided by racial issues, so we're going to avoid them. And instead, we're going to try and build support. We're going to try and build unity on non-racial issues. Maybe it's healthcare. Maybe it's the environment. Maybe it's the response to the pandemic. You can really see this in Joe Biden right now, right? Keep trying to pivot back to the economy. Keep trying to pivot back to the pandemic. Don't talk too much about intentional division. Uh, Don't talk too much about the racial justice protests. Okay, but... Right now, racial divisions are intense and getting worse. And Republicans have a story about why that is: good white people under threat from bad people of color. Simply ignoring that story—I mean, this is this is like the basketball team that says, you know, we see over there that their 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 best player is seven six. Da da da. Our strategy is not to guard them. <laughs> let's see how we do you know we're trying to make sure we keep passing the ball around to these other people but we're not going to guard their best player uh, how's that going to work out right because because people want to know why is this country divided why is there so much racial conflict the right's answering that every day democrats aren't answering it except in the sort of call out white racism framework. where we say yeah we're divided because whites are racist that's going to be that's a tough sell in terms of building a multiracial coalition, and again, not just a tough sell with whites. That's a tough sell with blacks and 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 Latinos as well, right? So, th- so, so this is where we say, okay, those are the standard messages, but let's try a new approach, a new approach that takes the best of both of, of both of those. The best is. Like the challenge white racism message, it directly challenges the racial division being promoted by the right. But it doesn't blame white people in general. Like the sort of economic populism message, it blames greedy elites. It says this is being done by some of the most powerful people, the the, the corporations, the 1%. They threaten all of us. So when we build bridges across racial lines, then and and only then can we build up the multiracial progressive coalition that can actually make sure government takes care of our families. And taking care of our families has a class component, an economic populism component, and it also has a racial justice component. Only when we drive out of office these dog whistle politicians can we stop them from funding the police, funding ICE, building prisons. um, And I don't, sorry, I don't mean funding it like at all. I mean, like every time Trump goes to celebrate the police, every police or public security union that endorses him, that is creating a symbiosis between a politician who spreads racial fear And a culture of white supremacist violence in law enforcement. That's what we have to break. Yeah, we need law enforcement. I think we need far less funding. We need far less funding for prisons. We need far more funding for social services. We can't get to any of that if politicians who are campaigning on messages of racial fear are Mm -hmm. winning. Right.
2: Yeah, I mean, there's been some great stuff recently about what about like reallocating funding to mental health and, and, and guidance, you know, people co- showing up on the scene that are not cops. And of course, you can't have that conversation because it's so entrenched in the dog whistle politics and corporate. Right? And, and you talk a little bit about dark money in the book. But that's the other issue is the, is that the, the, the dog whistle politicians representing the far right leading the far right. The, the corporate funding that we can't really see
3: right. seems to be playing
2: a huge role in bad policy.
3: Right. That, that That's who their funders are. But yeah. it's difficult to have a, a conversation about class because the right is driving a conversation about race. Yeah. And so mm-hmm. I think that the, the pivot here is and, – and now you might have noticed, you might have picked this up. Essentially, the left has divided – with right. half the left saying, okay, then let's talk about race. And we can call them, and I do in the book, I call them the race left. And the other part of the left saying, okay, well, let's talk about class. The right has fused race and class. They are using racial division in a class war. The left cannot succeed if we don't name the the race and class fused dynamic. And so that, that's the move. That's the insight to say, we are all losing when racism wins. Some of us are losing simply because this allows the, the rich to hijack the economy. Others are losing not only because the rich are hijacking the economy, but because politicians who win through messages of racial fear govern by, by funding and building the machinery of state violence against communities of color. But either way, we're all losing and all of us have a pragmatic um, interest in, in fighting dog politics and coming together across racial lines to take care of our own families. It's the right thing to do. It's the moral thing to do, but it's also strictly necessary for the survival of our own families, whether we're Brown or black or white.
2: Yeah. And you make a really good point. And then I want, I want to hear what Mary has to say at the very end of, oh gosh, it's in the one eighties. I've, I've earmarked so much of this book. <laughs> uh, Yeah, you make this argument that that sort of people can readily this I'm quoting you people can readily grasp purposeful division. In other words, hey, look, they're purposefully trying to divide us Uh, as they see it in their families, their workplaces, and community groups, and very much in politics. And they know that coming together is the clear solution. And I thought that was a really good point because people get that, right? They get, oh, someone's trying to split us up. And how often, you know, in the media, do you see that joke where someone's like, well, I could talk about my family that way, but you're not going to talk about my family that way. I mean, it's a really common trope. And yet you're right. I mean, I you saw it a little, you talk a little bit about how Clinton used it in the stronger together, Right, showing how Trump was using purposely divisive language, but of course there were so many factors there that um, that it got it, it couldn't lead the way as a strategy of success, and yet we're not seeing that being picked back up in the Biden Harris
3: ticket. Yeah, I think that that's right. So, so I I think that what's so here's the power of this narrative. It is explained in simple terms that people can immediately grasp. Right, everybody knows. Racial conflict is is really really bad right now. Everybody has a sense that uh, the economy is working best for the rich. All we're doing is we're connecting those through through a story about motives, which people can get pretty easily. Greedy elites are intentionally stoking division so they can laugh all the way to the bank. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right now, so so there's a this this is why again to repeat a really important point this sort of messaging works right now. In 2020, it is the most powerful political message within every racial group. So, so A. But B, this is actually, there's a lot going on here. And, and, and these ideas are actually, um, take a lot of practice and you really got to work through them because they're really pushing all of us to think about race in very different ways. So, Imagine, you know, if you're if you're a white person, you've probably never said to yourself, the biggest threat right now in my life is anti-black racism. And that's exactly what I'm saying. That's that's the thrust of this message. Anti-black racism is being marshaled by greedy elites like Donald Trump, who's tearing this society apart, threatening every family, threatening white families. But he's winning on the basis of anti-Black racism. So, so there's that. Or imagine you're a racial justice activist. It takes a lot of work to say, oh, racism isn't fundamentally about race hate. Mm-hmm. Racism yes. is fundamentally about profit. Some people, some of the wealthiest, most powerful segments of our society are making money. By stoking racist hatred. And the reason racism is so bad in America right now is not because white people in general are evil. It's because some of the most powerful people are profiting from it. And when I say the most some of the most powerful, I mean, I think you know a lot of the major, major corporations that fund right-wing think tanks, which end up being part of the Koch Brother network. Which end up channeling their resources into racial hatred, um, or these corporations that are that are major advertisers on Fox News. What do you think the Fox News business model is? That is, you know, Elizabeth Warren nailed it, that is hate for profit. That is yes. precisely what it is. Or uh, the, the Mercers as a family that's made billions on Wall Street or the Koch brothers, largest privately owned petrochemical conglomerate in the United States. What do they fund? Right-wing networks, and also they funded the Tea Party. They fund racial mm-hmm. hatred, and so these. What we're talking about here is a a message that, on its surface, is easy to grasp, and b a paradigm shift in how we understand the problem of racism in America. Because once we see that it has that racism has been weaponized by the rich over the last fifty years. That opens our eyes to recognize that's how racism gets its start. That's, that is the basic story of racism. It starts as a way to justify the dispossession of Native Americans, starts as a way to justify enslaving people, imposing upon people a system of chattel slavery. That's racism in the service of profit, the profit of, of the plantation owners. The, 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 many of the, oh, the, of the white um, farmers, they were impoverished by slavery, but rewarded by a myth of white supremacy, right? This has been the story of racism in this country for 400 years. And if we can get our heads around it now in 2020, that's the way we actually can save our society. That's the way we can take the next big step. In terms of racial equality, by realizing that a society in which we build bridges across difference is a society that can take care of all of our families, the evil people of color or if we're white. Mm hmm.
1: Yeah, so I wanted to just uh, talk just a little bit about another book. I know we're here for Merge Left, but I actually wanted to talk a little bit about a, a book you published in 1996 called White by Law, and I I really think your your research has kind of prepared you um, for where we are, you know, as a society, and and it was particularly interesting to me because I uh, I pass as white. I'm I'm half white, half Asian. And so this this kind of notion of of white being something that is uh, that has been legally constructed and in citizenship and who is white um, was was really interesting to me. And you look at cases where the courts um, go through and they kind of define that. And some of the things that were just shocking to me and I think kind of, um, you know, get at how how recent all of this is, you know, and. You know, until 1931, a woman who was a U.S. citizen would have her citizenship automatically stripped if she was married to a foreigner who was racially ineligible for citizenship. And, for example, somebody from China or Japan or a mixed race person, you know, would not be able to be a citizen. So I thought to myself, well, that would be me. I wouldn't be able to be a citizen because my mother, you know, if she, you know, married my Japanese father, and it's just, and that's so recent. You know, 1931 is so recent. And, you know, you, you say how citizenship serves as a proxy for race and that it's always been easier to think of someone as a non-citizen than to decide that they're a non-person. And to me, that, speak, that that dog whistle is going out so strongly in immigration and in the family separation policies of the Trump administration and putting kids in cages, you know, that really, what is that saying? That's saying that, that these people are not... Persons, they're not deserving of the same type of treatment that we would that we would give to you know white people, but that whiteness was something that was legally created. Um, what do you know? Do you do you see that yourself as as coming through? Very in- much so.
3: It's it's such a great question. There's there's
1: there's a through
3: line in the United States in which the country, powerful segments within the country have constructed a national identity that is very, very closely bound up with being white. And one example of that was that among the first laws that the first Congress passed in 1790 was a law about who could naturalize to become a citizen, who a a person with foreign citizenship could go through naturalization and become a U.S. citizen. And in 1790, Congress said, Only white persons could become citizens. And and so right away you see there's going to be this close connection between a sense of who can belong. And citizenship, we should understand, that's not just formal status. That's who who belongs, who's part of we the people, who's part of the group that's understood to be engaged in the American project of self-governance, government by and for the people. That's government by and for citizens. And so uh, immediately in 1790 that's tied to whiteness. Another big um, moment when this connection between citizenship and whiteness uh, r- r- really takes takes hold is during the period we think of as Manifest Destiny in the 1830s, 1840s. Um, as the United States continues its westward expansion, then goes to war with Mexico and takes the northern half of Mexico, so much of the rhetoric of that time is fueled by a notion of Anglo-American supremacy against the weakness, the inferiority of a mongrel Mexican identity. Then again, we see it in the first immigration cases. I think people will be surprised to know that prior to the Civil War, immigration was often seen as a state matter. That too has its history in slavery uh, the original slave states didn't want the federal government to control immigration out of fear that the federal government might use that authority to restrict the importation of Africans who are being turned into enslaved persons. That changes after the Civil War. There's a sense after the Civil War that the federal government is going to manage immigration and enforce some of the first immigration cases involve congressional laws banning immigration from China. And the court says, well, of course, Congress has the the power to ban immigration from China. That's a matter of national security. But then you want to stop for a second and say, there's no actual threat to national security from China in 1880, not in any literal military sense. There is a threat to national security from China if we understand national security to mean a national identity as a white country. And we see that again and again and again, and it's very, very prevalent in Donald Trump's language. When he's saying, make America great again, many progressives respond by saying, isn't he invoking a time when the United States was overwhelmingly white in its population? Isn't he really saying, make America white again? Isn't he invoking a nostalgia for, you know, a leave it to beaver, 1950s version of essentially a white, whites-only segregated suburb in which people were comfortable with, indeed oblivious to the fact of segregation. It was simply the way the world was supposed to be. That's what he's invoking. So this question of whiteness as something that is, is inseparable from the, uh, the, the nation-building project, it's really important to, to see that but then also to see the countervailing forces. Because we've been fighting against that. we, we were fighting against the idea that citizenship and whiteness should be uh, closely bound together. That was the whole import of the 14th Amendment um, uh, and and the the uh, Citizenship Clause of the 14th Amendment. The laws begin to change. The, the law against limiting naturalization to white people is finally fully struck down in 1952. In the 1960s, we get rid of racially informed restrictions in immigration altogether as part of the civil rights movement we are moving towards an ideal in which american citizenship connotes belonging connotes linked fate but is not limited by whiteness That's and that is precisely what donald trump is trying to contest
1: Right. And this and this notion, I think, and in the, in the point that you make uh, is a call and a call to action for, for whites uh, in your book is, you know, that they should renounce their privileged racial status because it perpetuates a pattern of superiority and inferiority. And I think that that's something that we're also hearing now, um, you know, with the with the um, with the current social justice and racial justice movements. And
3: yeah, but I was wrong. Oh, Yeah. No, I've changed okay. my mind on that. I think. So, oh, great. so this is, is right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, I think I was naive in, when I wrote that in 1996. What I thought in 1996 is hey, the problem is whiteness, so white people should stop being white, which, you know, if that were possible, sure, that'd be great. You know, in the same way that we should all just walk away from racial identity, fine. But the reality is that's not possible. We live in a society that is, that is, so deeply structured in terms of race that race really informs shapes our imaginations of who we are and who we can be and how we relate to others. And you simply cannot say, and this is, this is my critique of a lot of current anti-racist uh, trainings, right? You can, you simply can't, you just can't say to people, stop being privileged, you know, stop being white. What does that mean? How do you get out of it? How, what do you move to? Um, how do you then under how do you then feel good about yourself, right? Like if you think about a lot of anti-racist trainees right now, what they're offering whites is a hair shirt. Feel bad about yourself. Feel guilty. You can be an ally, but you can't be a leader. You're not an equal partner. You need to step back. You know nonsense. We're all just people. We're differently situated by race. Let's not, let's not, I'm not, I'm not saying that, you know, let, let's not think about race. Let's think very carefully about how race differently situates us. But let's be very clear that what's important is to offer everybody a way to feel good about themselves by being part of a multiracial coalition in which we believe in each other. We're curious about each other. We celebrate the differences. We build bridges across differences. We repair prior harms. um, Mm -hmm. We come together to take care of each other. And that ought to be available as much to people of color as to whites. I really do think progressives right now ought to be saying to whites, our agenda is to build a white identity predicated on seeing yourself as an equal and valued part of a multiracial coalition that rejects racism, celebrates difference, and commits to a, a, a profound belief in our linked fate. And, and economic equality, and economic equality, and economic, yeah. I, I, I yeah. encompass that in that linked fate, right? That that is like we need to yeah. take care of each other. But but I really want to insist, rather than offer progressive whites a vision of their identity that is that is uh, that is deeply tied to, to to guilt and to a sense of fault, why not offer people a, a, an identity tied to to joy and to hope and and to curiosity and to a sense of like yeah, we all have a lot of work to do. Frankly, and let's be honest, white people have a lot of work to do. Building a true egalitarian multiracial movement, not easy. Yes, people, white people need to deal with white privilege. Yes, they need to think about unconscious racism. Yes, they need to educate themselves about race if they've never talked about it or never thought about it before. All that work is still out there. It doesn't go away. But the impetus for doing so is the hope for a joyful, celebratory engagement with people who are different out of the conviction that we must take care of each other. <laughs> the, 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 the point <laughs> is being joyful and playful in your motivation to do the hard work to figure out mm-hmm. your racism and not and mm-hmm. being racist. And if you don't understand why people are offended, don't just blow that off and say, you know, mm-hmm. well, there's no flakes. Figure it out. Right? So, what I do like about a lot of the anti racist trainings is they're, they're, they're saying to white folks if you haven't thought about or talked about race or really struggled with it a lot in your life, you're going to have a hard time. It's mm-hmm. going to be a lot of work. You're going to be super uncomfortable. You might even feel like you're being victimized, like you're being threatened. That's not true. It's just that this stuff's really difficult to process when you're newly engaging with it. Do it anyway. Okay. Right. Yeah. Where I'm where I'm differing is why do it anyway? And a lot of the anti racist trainings are do it anyway because it's a moral thing to do and you're basically guilty. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah. mm, not super persuasive. Why don't we say do it anyway because this is a messed up society and right now those divisions are being weaponized against all of us by some of the most mm-hmm. powerful actors out there. And if we don't solve this problem, we will lose our country. But if we do solve this problem, we can build a society in which we dance together, eat together, listen to each other's music, we're curious, we're engaged, we're hopeful, and our children can grow up in a society rooted in joy and mutual care and not a society rooted in fear and suspicion and scarcity.
2: Yeah, and I'm just going to echo again that, that sentence, right? Greedy elites are purposefully stoking racial division and laughing all the way to the bank because I think one of the things that we haven't had a chance to talk about, but I, I think we should wrap up for, for the sake of time, um, is message discipline because you make a very good point in the book that one of the things that's happening is we're not seeing a consistent set of messaging around this race-class mer- uh, merge, even though the meanwhile, the right are excelling. At the racial division message discipline.
3: That's exactly right. The the, yeah. the 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 right The right understands it's more it's it's most sophisticated. Uh, partisans understand they are selling a lie. So as long as you're pretty clear you're selling a lie, then you're at least like well, let's be consistent about the lie we're selling. Whereas the left has really struggled because it it has not found a way. To convince whites to join in a multiracial coalition with people of color, and so it is diverged. With some people saying, "Well, we can't convince whites to join with people of color, so let's just not talk about race and let's just carry as many whites as we can." And other people are saying, "Hey, demographics have changed. This is wrong. Let's build power with with people of color." Right, but but there's just all this confusion about what it is that we're saying. We need it, more than just, or, or I would say. More fundamental than message discipline. We need people to appreciate the power of an analysis that says racism is fundamentally about profit and Mm. naming that reality is the only way we can build a society that takes care of all of our families, no matter what we look like. Once people grasp that, message discipline is easy because once they grasp the power of the analysis, then they say, oh, I see what's going on. And I see what we need to do to build power with other groups and actually start taking care of each other.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Well, this has been, this book was very transformative. I mean, I tip, I read a lot of books and usually I see the next thing coming, but sometimes you would say, actually, our research found this. And it's like, that's not what I thought was going to happen. So I cannot recommend highly enough that everyone check out um, Merge Left, Fusing Race Class, Winning Elections and Saving America by Ian Haney Lopez. And again, the website, which I will put in the show notes, a free resource. I've already looked at it. It's fabulous. RaceClassAcademy.com that gives you sort of a a very basic digital layout of some of the tools and practices. Again, I have to explore it more. But Dr. Lopez, it's been wonderful to chat with you. Do you want to say anything else about highlights of the book, takeaway messages for the audience? Or um, Mary, do you have anything that you want to add? Let's go Mary first, and then let's give Ian the last word.
1: Well, I just hope that uh, the left and the politicians really read this book and embrace what's being said because I think it speaks a lot of truth, and I think it is a it is a it is our path forward. And so, I really hope that people, uh, you know, ingest it.
2: Yeah, and then Ian, anything in terms of things you're working on now? Take home messages or anything from the book you want to highlight before we wrap?
3: The the one thing that I would highlight is. That this is a story about who we are and what has happened to us. That is that is hard hitting. That that really takes a critical look at what's going on, but that offers a solution commensurate with the scale of the problem. Mm. Right. That that is uh, so many books say, well, you know, there's too much dark money or the polluters, or, da 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 da, and then it offers some solution that's never going to happen. This is a book that's 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 genuinely hopeful in the sense of saying, we can see what's happening to us, but here's some really good research backed up by public polling that shows we can turn this around. And what do we get when we turn it around? We don't only win elections, we build a society rooted in joy and curiosity, celebrating differences, and an ethos of taking care of each other. That's what we get. And it's a beautiful thing. And I really want to leave people with a sense of things are bad and we can understand why they're bad, but we have a chance and a clear and plausible way to turn this around and make this the sort of society that we want to live in and that we want for our children.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I'll leave everyone with one of my favorite lines from Merge Left, page 220. It's so good it got its own paragraph. <laughs> and uh, Ian writes, But today's crises do present a moment when an energized left can seize the country's imagination to achieve radical change. And with that, thank you so much, everyone, for joining us. Ian, Mary, it's been a fabulous conversation. Listeners at home, I hope you're staying safe and physically distancing, but staying socially connected. And uh, I will put more information in the show notes if you'd like to reach out to anyone with questions or comments. And again, cannot recommend highly enough that you pick up Merge Left by Ian Haney Lopez. And just a quick plug, you know, your public libraries are struggling at the moment. um, And we thank the new press who published this book and all of the presses who do such great work. If you're not inclined to pick up a copy for yourself, a great suggestion is to buy a copy, preferably hard, and donate it to your local library. And that way other people can enjoy the book with such important messages. And also you can support your local institutions. Thank you so much for listening. Take good care.